2: People live in a world of their own making. Frankly, that seems to be the problem. Welcome to Angry Planet.
0: Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Jason Fields. Matthew Galt is taking his turn on sabbatical. It's been a concern lurking in the mind of America's leaders for a long time. What if Russia and China could successfully work together against the United States? A combined Russo-Chinese empire is the stuff of science fiction, perhaps, but what's the reality today? What goals do they share and how well do they work together? And how does that cooperation affect the potential war in Ukraine? To help us understand the situation, we have Andrew Rayden, who is a political scientist at the RAND Corporation. He researches European security, NATO, and Russia's foreign and security policy. Also joining me is Andrew Scobell, who is a distinguished fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace, an adjunct political scientist at the RAND Corporation, and an adjunct professor at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. They both worked on a RAND report called China-Russia Cooperation, Determining Factors, Future Trajectories, Implications for the United States. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. A pleasure. All right. Can we start with the basics? Have Russia and China always gotten along? Andrew Raden, can you maybe start us off?
1: Yeah, I'll give you uh, my perspective. And then Nusko Bell's got some good historical context. No, Russia and China have not always gotten along. I mean, I think one of the the way that we understand current and future relationship, the way that we wanted to study that is to go back and look at the history of their relationship. Because the the many... Trials and tribulations of of when they were were closely aligned in the uh, communist period to Sino-Soviet split to a small border war. They they really have covered quite a range of variation in, in how the two countries relate to each other. So by looking at the the history of how they've interacted we 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 gain some insight on the future and and what the drivers of their relationship are. Andrew Scobell do you want to go into some more examples I guess? Yeah, but if if you
3: go, go going back in in history when when there was a Russian empire and a Chinese empire they didn't always get along but sometimes they did. More recently in the more recent past as uh you know, both as as uh, communist party states, they did get along for for a period and and actually signed a formal alliance, which eventually broke down and and they ended up fighting each other. So their history is, is a mix of of conflict and and cooperation. I think the difference uh, today is, whereas as communist party states, the Soviet Russia, aka the Soviet Union, was the stronger party. To, Fast forward to today, it's really China that's the stronger, uh, more powerful partner.
0: When the communist parties were getting along, what was the cause of the split? Because from an outside American perspective, two communist states, they must have everything in common. Um, just sort of wondering what broke it apart.
3: Uh, I think a number of factors. One was ideological. The uh, From a Chinese perspective, the Russians had, had become revisionists revisionists and uh, betrayed the revolution and and so uh, that was one aspect but that was very much tied into M- M- Mao Zedong the, the Chinese communist uh, leader who really felt that that his ideological theoretical uh, contribution uh, was significant and whereas now, initially, when uh, in 1950, when the two party states uh, signed their treaty, Joseph Stalin uh, w- was still alive and there were tensions there between the two leaders. And yet Mao uh, really revered uh, Stalin as, as a veteran uh, revolutionary and, and leader. And so even though there were tensions and disagreements, uh, Mao was willing to defer To to Stalin and of course in exchange get lots of assistance uh, from the Soviet Union. But then after Stalin's death and 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 Nikita Khrushchev became the Soviet leader, that added a dimension uh, to the to the tensions because now Mao saw himself as as uh, senior to Khrushchev and bristled when Khrushchev uh, and the Soviets, in the Chinese view, uh, uh, tried to dominate the relationship. So. Bit of A bit of personal animosity, an ideological dimension, and then the power dynamics uh, at play,
0: too. One of the reasons why I asked the question is, I'm wondering, we have two very strong leaders now in Russia and China, and I'm wondering what draws them together. Is it just pure practicality, or did they like each other? I mean, in the past, personal politics mattered. I'm curious if that's also a factor this time around. Is one of you want to jump on that?
1: I mean, I'll, I'll give you one of the purposes of our report was to explore the question of kind of what was the underlying drivers of the relationship in terms of power, ideology, economic complementarity, or perceived threat from the United States. And by looking at the changes over the past 20 years, we see power dynamics and an increased threat from the United States as motivating shifts in the two countries to to develop a closer relationship. In particular, a shift in 2014 after Crimea, where Russia faces sanctions and really sees the best opportunity to, to forge a closer relationship with China, to, to compromise on the price of gas, perhaps, to recognize that China was going to steal military technology, but that that was sort of acceptable and, and within the realm of what they could, could work with. And and Russia had very few options at that point. But is it is it a personality thing? I mean, I think it, it doesn't hurt that Putin and Xi get along. I think the there is... Perhaps a contemporary ideological component as well that some people have looked at, that the two countries share a authoritarian element, a desire to control their own domestic media space. And they've they've shared tools and, and techniques for that. Is that driving the relationship? Personally, I don't think so. I think it, it doesn't hurt. But the driver is... In my mind, the concern about the United States and the power dynamic that leads the two countries to seek cooperation where they can and to seek mutual advantage. I would just that just sense. add,
3: the, the there is a bromance of sorts between the two leaders. I, I think they genuinely like and respect each other as strong men, sort of macho authoritarian leaders who are also willing to stand up to in their view, a domineering United States. And I think there's a, even though we, we tend to paint I think, China and Russia as as being strong, powerful, and threatening, whether it's you know, on the military massing along the border with Ukraine or provocation, mounting provocations in the Taiwan Strait, my sense is that the, certainly the Chinese, but I think also the Russians, see themselves as weaker or vulnerable more or or, are quite vulnerable to the United States and and our allies, whether it's in the hard power realm or the soft power realm, I think they see a a challenge. And and so that also is pushing them to, uh, to cooperate. So soft power in the sense of, they see uh, Western-style democracy and, and human rights as being threatening. So that, I think that's a powerful force driving the Chinese and the Russians uh, to cooperate, to counter
0: uh, counter perceived U.S. threat. In the past, these kinds of things have drawn countries together, but they've rarely lasted when you have two great powers. And it seems to me that Russia certainly is By definition, through having nuclear weapons and a rebuilt military, they are a great power. And China, of course, is on its upswing. Can the two, do you think, get along for the long term, or is this just a short term alliance?
1: I think it'll, uh, a lot will depend on what the nature of the perceived relationship with the United States and Europe is. The question is if. The United States and Europe is no longer perceived as a mutual threat by Russia and by China. It's hard to see how that's going to change anytime soon, but let's suppose that were to change. Would China and Russia continue to have this close relationship or would they find reasons to fall out with each, of one, each other? There are hindrances in the relationship. A good example is the regional politics. Russia goes out of its way to maintain a good relationship with South Korea, with Japan. Um, it has a longstanding defense cooperation with India, India's arrival of China, that they have a conflictual relationship. Uh, there's also economic issues in the Far East of illegal logging over the border in the Far East of Russia. Absent the geopolitical push drawing them together? Will those issues start to, to pull them apart? I think that's very possible. But that's a long-term question. I mean, I think from a U.S. perspective, we see U.S. policy towards Russia you know, happening right now in Ukraine. That's not driving Russia away from China, quite the opposite. Uh, similarly, U.S. policy describing China as a competitor, Andrew can say more, I don't think leads China to change its, its approach at all.
0: Then, how close do you see Russia and China becoming? Are we talking about actually joint military cooperation in terms of putting out armies together, or is it just economic cooperation? What do you think we can expect to see going forward? Well, I think we already
3: see a significant military cooperation and joint exercise have been going on uh, for many years now. So so there is already a significant cooperation across the board. I think both because of both countries are reluctant to go to you know a a full blown uh, military alliance in part because they tried that you know many decades ago and it didn't go so well. So I know neither Moscow nor Beijing is particularly keen on that. But also, I think neither power wants to commit, you know, be entrapped by an alliance. So the the current alignment um, between the two countries works well for both of them. China can, you know, voice support for Russia, make the right noises. But if there were things were to escalate uh, further with between Russia and, and Ukraine, China is not obligated to, you know militarily side with russia similarly if there were t- escalating tensions in the taiwan strait russia could make all the the right noises but there would be no there would be currently there would be no expectation that, that russia would join china militarily. So I think there's already significant cooperation. Could it become even closer? Possible. But I think the interviews that the other Andrew did in Russia and the interviews that I did for this report in China suggests that while neither side is keen on making this a full-blown alliance, if things got appreciably worse uh, between the two countries and the United States, that possibility would always be there.
0: The goal of taking Ukraine back into the Russian, not just sphere of influence, but almost into Russia, perhaps, and into some form, i God knows what form that would take. And maybe Andrew Radin could explain what that might look like. But is there some similarity as far as both countries view uh, taking over Ukraine and taking back Taiwan? I mean is I love the word irredentism, which I only learned a couple of months ago. Do they both see each other's views on these countries as legitimate?
1: I think the you raised a good question what exactly is Russia's plan for Ukraine? One difference between these two countries between Taiwan and Ukraine is Ukraine has been independent country that Russia has recognized as such for since the end of the, the Soviet Union people sort of quote putin or other russians is ukraine a real country and you can find hesitation but putin's rhetoric of late has been more about ukrainians having a similar origin being the same people which is a little bit of a different story than ukraine is not a real country they're blaming the west for how they've shaped ukraine All sort of a different narrative. What exactly is Putin's plan for Ukraine now? How does Putin break Ukraine from the Western orbit? That's a kind of dilemma that I think makes Putin's next move in Ukraine tricky. One thing that the invasion after 2014 did was it turned a society that had been Quite closely integrated with Russia, the, the vast majority of people in Ukraine are, are, are basically bilingual, right? You can find people who just speak Russian or just speak Ukrainian, but most people you run into are basically bilingual. And, and Ukraine, integration with Russia has really diminished. You had many people whose primary language is Russia, who are now you know, ardent Ukrainian nationalists in, in Kiev, for example. So how would a Russian invasion change that, that trajectory for Ukraine? That's going to be a tough thing to figure out. Or what's the governance structure following some sort of Russian military action that's, that's sustainable. All things that we really have no idea how they would work or how they could work. One fact that I think is still true Andrew, can confirm is I don't think China has recognized Russia's annexation of Crimea. So that's a indication of how China is perhaps not willing to take, um, diplomatic risk on Russia's behalf. And I think that is a sign that their diplomatic approach does not always align, right? They have a, basically a, a closely aligned policy on a country like North Korea, but there are other crises and examples in the world where they don't. So they, they could use the, the conflict as a way to, to provide mutually reinforcing diplomatic fires, but they could also see ways that their, their policies don't align. And, and I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that Russia's actions on Ukraine will actually provide China with more legitimacy, or anything else concerning Taiwan. But but Andrew will provide more insight.
3: I think that's that's right. And and even though uh, I think Putin and Xi would insist they are not emperors, I, I think they do have an imperial outlook in in the sense that both Russia and China were once empires, and Russia, of course, more in the modern era as the Soviet Empire. So these and you combine that with a strong ethnic dimension; it really colors their respective views to territories populated by Slavic or Han Chinese peoples. And so, this era, the term you used, irredentism, I think is quite appropriate. So there are there there are similarities in their outlooks and approach approaches, but or parallels at least. But as as Andrew Raiden pointed out, there's a There were some noteworthy differences in how Russia's uh, looked at Russia's approach to Ukraine and China's approach to Taiwan.
2: All right, Angry Planet listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We will be right back.
1: And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Thank you for sticking around. We are back on Angry Planet.
0: Another thing in your report that you know, stuck out to me, and I wondered if it changed dramatically, You say that Chinese and Russian power will continue to approach but not exceed U.S. power through 2022. Do you think things have actually turned out that way? We've spoken with a lot of people on this podcast to talk about just how powerful China has become and how Russia has restructured its own military. How – Strong are they at this point, Andrew Radin? Do you want to at least talk about the how strong Russia's become?
1: Yeah, and I can talk a little bit about our metric for aggregate power. One of the contributions that I think is is important from our work is to provide, among all of the other literature out there, a, a metric for evaluating aggregate power we use a measure of military power basically identifying key military systems that are out there and seeing how of the three countries who has the most how does their relative share change over time we have a measure of economic power which is a measure of total size times efficiency so gdp times gdp per capita and then we have a technology index of some different measures Based on when we collected the data, that what you said was the trajectory China and Russia would approach but not exceed the United States by, by the current year. Unfortunately, we haven't had the opportunity to update that. I hope we will in the future. But my guess is that while there has been sort of movement along that dimension, a lot has changed with COVID, perhaps. I'm not sure that it's, it's going to be as demonstrative in China and Russia's favor, as many would fear. Russia certainly has had the opportunity to modernize many of its systems, but so has the United States One factor that we we didn't have the opportunity to consider is the power of U.S. allies. What does the Europeans bring to bear? The Europeans have been shifting their own policies towards competition with China. How does that play out? Similarly, the the allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific. So I I wouldn't count the West out um, on aggregate power yet.
0: For NATO, which you just mentioned and written, can Europe actually contribute very much at this point? I mean, if... Let's say Russia does somehow take Ukraine, whatever that means, if they keep their troops in Belarus, which is also a concern. uh, Can NATO, especially the countries on the border with uh, Russia and Belarus, is there any chance that they can actually protect themselves at this point or would we be able to get there fast enough or is that so wild at this point that it doesn't even matter?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, colleagues of mine, David Scobell and sorry, Michael uh, Johnson, Schleypeck and Johnson, did a study a long time ago arguing that from RAND's wargaming, the Russians could seize the Baltic states with a short-notice attack absent a major reinforcement by U.S. forces. There have been some significant changes to the force posture enhanced forward presence, battalions in the Baltic states, rotational U.S. forces, increasing basing in Poland. Recently, there's been announced some other changes. Does any of this change the basic fact that the Eastern European countries are a lot closer to Russia than they are to the United States, and therefore Russia has a time-space advantage? They don't. Fundamentally, that still exists. What I would say is that if you look at russian interests as we've interpreted them through our research and you look at how russia has stationed its military forces where they've chosen to modernize indeed the current russian force posture that exists around ukraine i think one can conclude that the focus of russian interests are on ukraine that russia understands article 5 the commitment by nato states to come to each other's defense russia has no great desire to start a war with the united states they understand just as well as the United States, that that could escalate to to a very bad place. So Russia's focus seems to quite clearly be around Ukraine. Belarus, as well, they're doing exercises there. I think the United States has taken action to reassure NATO countries, as they did in 2014, with with sort of additional presence and and activities. That seems to me to be a precautionary measure that's not connected to some sort of imminent threat of, of a Russian attack against nato which i hope everyone would see as as, as crazy but a russian attack against ukraine also seems a little bit crazy so one never knows
0: is china willing to buy just an awful lot of russian gas or other russian products in order to help keep russia afloat against sanctions that would very well be coming after any kind of invasion of ukraine
3: it's a very real politic relationship. I mean, there's some friendship there and warmth between top leaders and in a sense that their alignment is enduring, but this is about practical, you know, national interests and what's in it for China. What's in it for China is getting, getting energy resources at reliable, close at reasonable prices. And it's the Chinese 2014, you know, most people in, in, in our report have identified that as a pivotal year. And that's when Russia, I mean, literally Putin hopped on a plane and flew to China and said, we'll, we're happy to sell you energy and we will give you a really good rate. Because up until 2014, the Chinese said, but yes, we're interested in buying from you, but let's talk price. And the Russians said, yeah, we'll give you the European price. And the Chinese said, no, thank you. So it's you no, know, in a situation that that you described, Jason, there'd be, I think that the Chinese would be consider that they have have leverage, and yeah, we'll help you, Russia. But what do we get? So it's a, a friendly relationship, but it's ba- based on cold, real politique calculation.
0: And China has been facing something of an energy crisis recently. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, with some questions about their coal production, if I understand this. And it just seems like that might make any sort of a um, gas alliance, energy alliance with Russia that much more appealing.
3: Yeah, there's definitely economic complementarity, as I think our report underscores. So, yes, there are, there is uh, – you know, Is very useful to Russia right now, and and certainly it could be even more useful or more important to loom larger if there are tensions escalate
0: with Europe and the U.S. Andrew Raden, what do you see as happening next? It's a fun question, and uh, I'm sure you feel 100 percent confident in whatever you say. What do you think?
1: Yeah, will Russia launch a large scale military uh, operation against Ukraine? Could be Wednesday, right? Um, Call me skeptical. My read of Russia's interests and their decision making in the past make me believe that they would not launch a large scale military operation against Ukraine. The, The costs are simply too high. in not only in terms of sanctions, in terms of refugees and casualties, Russia, I've argued in the past has been limited by the public opinion about Ukrainians, Russians like Ukrainians, everyone knows Ukrainians, they're closely connected societies. And so that I've argued is the reason why Russia denied the presence of Russian military in Ukraine in 2014, 2015. Maybe that's changed a little bit. I don't think it's changed a lot. I'm not the only one who thinks that, right? If you read some of the most prominent Russian foreign policy analysts, Russian Global Affairs, Karganov, Lukyanov, other, other of these guys, they all say we can't see a Russian attack against Ukraine. It doesn't make sense. That being said, there's many good reasons to think that it's hard for Putin to de-escalate at this point, And that while we've seen a pattern so far, it could change. Putin, there's a lot of Russian military presence around Ukraine. Why is it there? There are signs that it's increasing. It's expensive to keep them there. All these things, as well as statements by the U.S. government and others, make one think that the risk of war is quite present. I guess I I don't quite know how to square these two competing factors of what we see now versus what we've seen in the past. To to your question of what's our confidence, I guess my confidence is I don't think it's going to be what we expect. What we've seen in Crimea or Syria, all these things make me believe that we don't usually have a good sense of what Putin's next move is, and I and I doubt we do now.
0: Any final thoughts uh, uh, from you, Mr. Scobell? Um, Just that
3: the alignment, current alignment between Russia and China, you know. it's unlikely to morph into a full blown alliance, but there are good reasons for, for believing that this alignment between Moscow and Beijing, you know, is fairly robust and will continue into the future. I think there are two fundamental reasons why it's in neither country's interests to see the relationship deteriorate for any reason, such as a disagreement over Ukraine or Taiwan or, or the price of liquefied gas. And that is, both countries are, are partners with Heft. They're both nuclear powers. They're both Perm, Perm 5 members. And so, so th- that's really important. The second reason is a good relationship or a cordial relationship between the two countries. It means that their respective backdoors are protected. They share a long border. And one thing they don't need to worry about in today's world is you know instability, or military challenges along their respective borders. So th- there's a baseline for cooperation between the two countries, and I don't think, even though it's not something that most people in Washington, you know, think about, it- it's certainly in the back of the minds of leaders in Moscow and Beijing.
0: Andrews, Raiden, and Scopel. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us. Great to be here.
2: That's all for this week Angry Planet Listeners. As always, Angry Planet is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin Odell. was created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like the show, AngryPlanetPod.com or AngryPlanet.substack.com where you can get commercial-free versions of the Mainline Show and two bonus episodes a month. The most recent uh, bonus was about um, Russian mercenaries working in Africa. Some have been recalled to Ukraine uh, and other parts of Eastern Europe recently. uh, It's a good episode. You should go check it out at angryplanet.substack.com. We will be back next week with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. Stay safe until
3: then.